Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terror and extreme violence, sometimes in quite a lot of detail. So you might find some of the following material upsetting. Hello, I'm Adnan Sawa, and this is Taking Apart Terror. Could this be you? Does ISIS still control an territory? Can terrorists judge whether an act of terrorism is effective or not? Are there any women in ISIS? I want to know if terrorists get paid. Does ISIS run like a company? They're called Daesh. I mean, are these names just made up by people? Is ISIS actually still a thing? Terrorism. It's not a subject to be taken lightly, of course it isn't. But it is a subject that often seems very tricky to grasp. When was the last time you saw a news item that involved footage of a hot, dusty war zone somewhere with, you know, men in scarves, holding guns, sitting on the back of a pickup truck, and you just kind of tuned out? Because, like, if you're honest, a long time ago you lost track of who is who and what is actually going on out there. And anyway, hasn't all this been sorted out? So... That's what we're setting out to do with this podcast. We are literally taking apart terror, starting from scratch, answering some very basic questions and some less basic ones, filling in some of the gaps so that when things do happen, we've got a better chance of understanding why they're important. As we go through this series, we'll look at all aspects of how terrorist organisations, ISIS and you know Daesh in particular, operate, what motivates them. What are they trying to do and how are they doing it? So, who am I anyway? I was a soldier in the British Army and I served in the Iraq War, which is one of the reasons we're all here talking about this today. My time in the military was all about the war on terror. People look at me as a soldier and think that I know everything about it, and I don't. You know, because I was a very small part of this huge operation. And I've got lots of questions about this as well. In this first episode, we're trying to explain some of the terms we've probably all heard, but we don't really know the meaning of. We're aiming to understand them better, so we all get what we're talking about when we go into things in more depth as this series goes along. Helping me to do that explaining this time are three people who you're going to hear quite a lot from in this podcast. Dr Nadia Awedat is an assistant professor at Kansas State University, who has done extensive research into all aspects of Islamic extremism and counter-terrorism strategies, as well as being a leading authority on the evolution of Islamic thought and ideas. Welcome, Nadia. Hi, how are you? And we also have Dr. Shiraz Maher, who is the director of the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation at King's College London. His book, Salafi Jihadism, The History of an Idea, and I'm not just saying this because I'm reading it, and it is excellent. It's really helping me understand this uh, subject. The Guardian described it as one of the best books to understand modern terrorism. Hello, Shiraz. Hi. And we have Omar Mohammed, who is a historian who was working at the University of Mosul when ISIS seized the city in 2014. For the next three years under the title Mosul I, he risked his life to report to the world on the atrocities that he was seeing there. He was one of the few reliable sources of information. He once said of that time, all I could see was blood. He now lives and works in Paris, unable to return home, but is still dedicated to helping his native city recover and to spreading the word about what happened there. Hello, Omar. Hello, Adnan. Omar, I, w- I wanted to ask you, and it's quite sensitive, but it's, you know, Mosul was the centre 
of where a lot of this kind of the atrocities and the levels of violence were coming out. And it was because of people like you, you know, citizen journalists who were who were showing the world what was actually going on. That phrase that you put in there that, you know, all I could see was blood. It, you know, I, I don't know if people could relate to that. What what were the acts of terror? What I'm going to describe, Adnan, is things I have seen myself and for the sake of recording and documenting the history, I forced myself to see. What I have seen is people being beheaded in the daylight, in the middle of the streets, young people, including children, being forced to gather to watch the beheading of a man. I have seen women being stoned to death by Daesh. They were accused by Daesh of adultery. I have seen a young person, his hand was cut off because he was accused of stealing during the hunger time when the city was starving. I have seen people being thrown off high building because they were accused by Daesh of being LGBTQ. I have seen men, all elderly, being lashed in the middle of the street and their dignity was put under the shoes of the terrorists of Daesh. I have seen women running uh, during the day because Daesh was chasing them and Daesh was playing this game of execution, telling them, if you can make it, you will survive. And then they run in a circle because their mind is confused. They don't know what they were doing. This woman, her mind was confused that she thought she was escaping, but she was running in a circle and then she fell down and they executed her. That's what Daesh was doing on daily basis. And that's why it's reality when I say all I could see is blood. Omar, uh, wow, thank you for reminding us. I mean, if we needed reminding that for some of us, this is kind of a, a distant thing, this terrorist activity. But for many people like you, this was very close and very terrible and very personal. I mean, you lived this. And that makes it even more important for us here that we understand what happened and what is going on. Because that way, we're more likely to engage with and support possible solutions to this. So let's start unpacking this whole subject. Let's start with the names. We hear so many of them. ISIS, Islamic State, IS, ISIL, Daesh. I mean, what is this group called? And what should we call them? Shiraz, could you start with this? They have had all these different names, and that speaks to the complex nature of the movement, right? And the various arguments of legitimacy or not. So I, I hate it when people refer to it as the Islamic State. That in and of itself makes a value judgment that we recognize it as an Islamic State if we talk about it in the English. If if I do use that term, I use it as a noun in the way that you would use the word Al-Qaeda. So, you know, you would say Islamic State did this rather than the Islamic State. Okay, so that's Islamic State taken care of. But where does the name Daesh come from? Nadia, can you tell us more about that? So they refer to themselves as the Islamic State, Tanzim al-Dawla. But actually, ISIS, in fact, encountered a lot of resistance. And one way that resistance showed itself is through humor, right? Tyranny hates humor. And one way that the resistance made fun of them. 
is to basically take the abbreviation of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria in Arabic and turn it into something that sounds ridiculous. It's like, imagine calling one dictator by this silly name. And Daesh sounds so ridiculous, it, it's, it's resisting by humor. I think although the term Daesh didn't come from a good party, it came from the Syrian regime, but I still believe that it's important to call them Daesh for many reasons. First, they hate the name, and we want to tell them what they hate. Second, it gives us a very big and wide space to deprive Daesh from the resources that it depends on. And here I am referring to what Daesh claimed to be the protector of, which is the Sunni Islam or the Islam uh, that Daesh claimed to be representing. As we always say, language matters and concepts matters. The conceptual history is very important start a separate conversation with the Muslims, their religion have been hijacked by Daesh itself in order to separate them and isolate them from what they claim to be defending. Omar, you make a great point that um, Muslims have to understand this. And I think a lot of uh, people in the West believe that Muslims know everything about their own religion. And I don't know everything about Islam and people ask me questions about terrorism and I'm completely lost. If I may add, Adnan, it's also important to use this name, not just for the reasons I mentioned, but it's also because in Mosul, people were killed because they used this name. So it's an act of remembrance for those people. Exactly. let's talk about where this organization actually came from. Lots of people blame the invasion of Iraq in 2003, that's the war that I was involved in personally, for creating Daesh. There was a vacuum after the Allies left which they filled. That's the way the story goes. But obviously Islamic extremism existed way before that. None of us can forget 9-11 and we know a little bit about Al-Qaeda. Were Daesh new or were they a splinter group from the organisations that already existed? Yeah, I think it's worth assessing really the last two decades of the war on terror or the war on terror years to try and contextualise that question of, you know, where does Daesh come from? If you imagine on September the 11th, when uh, the attacks take place in the United States and George Bush comes out and, you know, the world is looking to him to, to make sense of, you know, what has just happened. And... He talks about this group that maybe a few people have heard of, Al-Qaeda, and this character that, again, some people may have heard of, Osama bin Laden. And we're talking about one organization that has a fairly hierarchical structure. And there's a secondary group that pops onto our radar called the Taliban. And the Taliban are these guys out in Afghanistan who are hosting Al-Qaeda, but don't have direct involvement in 9-11. And so these are two new organizational terms that enter the the popular consciousness of the world and of the West in particular. But I think there's a case to be made that from the moment we go into uh, Iraq in 2003, we're already at that point seeing a splintering of the jihadi movement. And so whilst you've got al-Qaeda in Iraq, led by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who's their number two or their man on the ground 
in this particular theatre, I think it's quite clear from the way that Zakawi was acting that he already began to essentially recalibrate the balance of power within the global jihadi movement and was already rendering both Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri, the second in command you know, of the organization, into irrelevance. And in that sense, if Al-Qaeda is operating as a sort of uh, localized movement, then, then this particular chapter, the chapter that's in Iraq, is already becoming fairly independent at that time. And that's important because it begins to strike out on its own. And in doing so, the seeds and, and the genesis for Daesh then are, are sown already. But so it kind of goes from Afghanistan, goes from Al-Qaeda, goes to Iraq, goes to kind of like a group uh, there, and then the instability that came after the war, and then this other group forms called Daesh. Is that right? When we speak about terrorism or the rise of terrorism, I don't totally agree to connect it just as a response to recent events happened in the Middle East. If we really need to uh, discuss the real issue, we really need to start an honest, long-term debate of two concepts in Islam, jihad and caliphate. We are speaking about, regarding the caliphate, about a 14th century old promise, a prophecy from the prophet, and the tool that is supposed to bring this caliphate to life, which is jihad. They are not separated. They work alongside each other. Uh, this promise has been manipulated by terrorist groups many times. All right, let's explore this for a moment. Jihad is a term we hear a lot about, but we don't really understand it. I mean, I didn't even understand it. When I was growing up in the mosque, jihad was about this inner struggle to be good. But at the same time, we also had the Mujahideen in Afghanistan talking about jihad. And, and now whenever we hear about it, it's in the context of referring to these extremists and their war against the West. So it's a term that's been used in lots of different ways. Omar, can you explain what the term jihad actually is and why it's changed. Yeah, it's not what is jihad, Adnan. It's who has the authority in Islam in our time to define what jihad is. Because in certain times in Islamic history, we know that the Prophet was the first one to define what jihad is. And then there was an authority, there was a system, there was political Islam, there was people who can define what jihad is, it became a much more peaceful concept. It was deprived from the meaning of violence, etc. But then the crisis of authority over Islam grown. If we find the answer of who has authority in Islam, then the concept of jihad is already solved. May I actually add, though, so we can say, oh, you know, jihad is only internal struggle. But that was not what happened in history. That is not what the Prophet himself did. The Prophet himself did not do internal jihad. He waged dozens of conquests. Conquest of very rich empires, the Byzantine Empire, the Sasanian Empire. And people who are extremists know this. They know history. The person who started Al-Qaeda had a PhD in Sharia. He taught both in Saudi and at the University of Jordan. The head of ISIS has a PhD in Sharia. So there are a lot of things about the conquest, the Islamic conquests, that were less than savory. And extremists love that history of dominance. They love that history of conquering the world. 
That is a glorious history. Nadia, you've mentioned Sharia law, and that's another term that many people will have heard and, and not really understand. A lot of us think now it's this extremist version of justice and punishment. Like Omar was talking earlier about cutting people's hands off and women being executed for adultery. Can you explain a bit more about where Sharia comes from and why it's still being used by groups like Daesh? So basically, humans evolve and uh, readjust. I mean, if you look at how we punish people in, the, in the medieval times or in the Dark Ages, there's an enormous evolution. But Sharia law came out of 7th century Arabia. So it, it's quite austere, it's quite harsh. And in, in modern days, it's quite brutal and barbaric, honestly. Again, to cut people's hands and, and it's not even effective. If you cut people's hands, you just end up with more mutilated people. You don't end up with less crime. I totally agree with what Nadia is saying. It's about history, yes. For those who do not know history, there was a point when all of these concepts were put on hold. What Daesh wants us to believe is that there is only one side of the story of Islam, which is the violence that they want to present. Shiraz, we were talking earlier about Afghanistan and Iraq, okay, and we stopped there. But where are we talking about now? You know, the geography of which parts of the world are involved? Coming back to looking at the the war on terror years this last two decades, and in fact, what you've seen is a splintering of the threats. You've seen a proliferation now of different groups in West Africa, in the Horn of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, in Yemen, uh, in the Levant, in AFPAC, again, many groups, uh, more groups than ever operating in Pakistan as well. So what links Boko Haram to uh, Daesh, to Al-Qaeda in Yemen, to the Pakistani Taliban, uh, for example? I think there is a case to be said that, look, all of these groups, yes, they subscribe to this broad notion of jihad, such as the belief of in, in the Khilafah of an Islamic state. But they are also responding to local dynamics. You know, this notion that jihad has gone global, as it were. There's a global resonance and impulse around a lot of this. But what you find is that there is a highly localized set of trends and characteristics as well that are fueling and uh, giving shape and contours to the way these groups are operating in their immediate localities. So let's talk about motivations for a bit. What do Daesh actually want when they carry out acts of terror? As I understand it, they want to create this caliphate, this idea of a Muslim state run by a caliph or direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. But Nadia, is that the whole reason? One fabulous book about this subject is Inside Terrorism by uh, Bruce Hoffman, world-renowned terrorism authority on the subject way before 9-11. Bruce Hoffman defines terrorism essentially acts of violence to achieve a political goal. I'm oversimplifying it. But it is important to, to stress here the political goal. Because again, ISIS wants to establish a state. They do not see that Islam can prosper without a state and that that state, it has to be governed by their version of Sharia that is directly from the divine. So it is superior. 
I really want to stress that the reason why young people buy this is because there's a lot of support and a lot of religious leaders that advance this claim that basically the Salafi version is the real version. Whereas, you know, a lot of liberal Muslims, they don't have as much platform. I think we need to try and understand what's motivating them. If you look again at Daesh, for example, I think that's a really good example of an organization that proved itself to be hostage to ideology. If you look at the reality of what was happening in 2014, 15 and 16, it was the most powerful actor on the ground, right, in terms of in Syria and Iraq. There was the really, the local forces were not going to be able to to reclaim that territory from it. And you had a, a US administration under Obama that was doing absolutely everything to not get involved. And so the way to absolutely ensure your demise is to continue to attack the French, the Germans, the Belgians, to continue to provoke the West and to behead Americans on TV, such as James Foley, which then obligates a US president to act in their name. But this spoke to the blind and almost euphoric sense of ideological zealot that Daesh had underwriting the movement, that they believed this really was the end of days and that this really was hastening the, the notion of Yom al-Qiyamah, the, the final day of account. And this is important because simultaneously the Daesh project is uh, contradictory. On the one hand, in the temporal world, it is constructive, right? It's attempting to establish this state and to expand it and so on, right? Yet, at the same time, what it's also seeking to do is to use that as a vehicle to hasten the end of time. And so its philosophical goal is actually quite a destructive one. I still remember when I attended the first meeting inside the university, when they brought all the teaching staff and the administrative staff, I still remember the phrase he said. He said, I want this education system to produce only one thing, a fighter. That's what they were doing. That's what they were doing inside the orphanage house. Young children, orphans, seven years old or eight years old, they were taken to training camps. Uh, they were uh, trained of how to use the weapon, how to behave other people. That's the kind of society they wanted to establish. A society completely based on fear, a society completely based on violence, because they made it clear it's either us or the blood. You know, Omar, you mentioned something really important, which is how much they value education. They know that unless you educate these kids to be murderers, they're not going to naturally be this brutal to stone another human being to death to kill an elderly, to terrorize a woman. You need to educate them on these ideas. And unless we have a competing education, unless we equip every young kid with ability to critique and ability to value, again, liberal values that respect individual sovereignty, there'll be a lot more groups with various names. It doesn't matter because it's about education. What I've got from this conversation is that this was a an organization called Daesh that had an extremely violent birth and it's still 
influencing and uh, you know it's around the world it's still a very violent relevant organization i mean we've just had the attacks in mozambique um so the question is should we still be scared of daesh i think we should be vigilant the structural issues in both syria and iraq that led to and allowed for the dramatic rise of daesh in the first place are still there and have been accentuated by years and years of war and therefore until we address those issues grievance narratives desperation exploitation um a sense of hopelessness about the future these are all the kinds of things that uh, a radical group like daesh needs in order to perpetuate itself and its movement then you could see a revanchist campaign being launched by this organization and i'll finish on one final point we have seen the wrapping up and the collapse of the territorial acquisitions of daesh across both syria and iraq and now we have this pretty unprecedented situation in which tens of thousands of men and women aligned with the group and children who were unfortunately born within it or are taken to it by their parents are being held in northeastern syria in detention centers which are not particularly secure so there needs to be a lasting solution here uh, in terms of what we do about those detainees to ensure that they don't become active once again i think we should absolutely continue to wage if you would the war of ideas i mean i know there's been a lot of rhetoric but not real action and we really need to be more serious about doing actions that are connected directly to ideas and that includes like my colleague omar says we already have seen an embodiment of what a successful extremist state looks like and i dare say 99.9% of muslims do not want it do not want to live in it so we need to really exploit what that was like as hard as it is as brutal as it is to really inform the wider muslim public of what it actually looked like all of these things that are in direct conflict with their values look i mean omar you lived under daesh when they were at their absolute peak do you think there's a real threat that they'll be back at that kind of scale again i don't believe that they will manage to have another opportunity like they did in 2014 i think this is done for them there is something very important that we should always insist on referring to and mentioning the damage that daesh did to the sunni community that daesh claimed it protected no one has ever managed to do such damage and harm to the sunni communities like daesh did second in the cities that were freed from daesh the bigger question now is the legitimization of the so-called jihad the ideology of daesh is no more something that the people can easily buy it might give daesh another opportunity if we neglect the spirit of the people who did not only witness the terror who were suffering from this terror so yes daesh doesn't have the ability again but is it a threat yes it's still a threat we'll definitely be picking up on a lot of these things later on in the series it's helped me get somewhere a bit different with my thinking and my understanding of this you know um so thank you thank you shukran 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 jazilan thank you very much that is it for this first edition of taking apart terror i'd like to thank omar mohammed and nadia awedat and shiraz mar for helping us answer the question 
Is ISIS still a thing? Yeah, it is. And now we know a lot more about what kind of thing. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. In the course of this series, we are going to go into every aspect of what these extremists do, how they funded, how they communicate, the role of women, as well as what the world is trying to do to stop them, and how we get past the devastation they cause. By the end of this, you really will know so much more about one of the most significant threats in the world today. I'm Adnan Sawa, and I look forward to speaking to you next time as we unravel how Daesh is organised and how it operates. Thank you for joining me. Goodbye.